Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and there you will be tested, and for ten days you will suffer tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. God, your word is good, and you are faithful. Thank you for hearing us when we pray. Thank you for seeing us when we suffer and we struggle, and we think nobody sees. Thank you for the word that you gave to your church in Smyrna, and thank you for the word that you give your church today. Please help us to hear what your spirit says to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, thank you so much. Well, today is my 42nd birthday, and I can think of no greater gift than to have my wife quote God's word like that. Well, I hope you have your Bibles this morning. If you don't, there's one in the pew in front of you. I'd like you to grab it, turn it to Revelation chapter 2 with me. We're going to start in verse 8 this morning. Grab your sermon guide out of your bulletin, pen, pencil, and let's dive right in together. Revelation chapter 2, we all have those moments in life where Michael so appropriately brought us to this morning as he talked about, here I raise my Ebenezer, those moments in life where we remember things like when something huge took place. And it's sort of like your brain took a screenshot of that moment in time, and you can remember it vividly no matter how long ago it was. And so let's just play along here together for a moment with a show of hands. How many of you from our older generation can remember where you were at the moment when JFK was assassinated? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. So, all right, maybe from a different generation, but... but Raise your hand if you can remember for a moment where you stood exactly when you heard that the second plane hit the World Trade Center and you knew it was no longer an accident. Okay? Some of us, it was that first moment when we met the one who would be our future spouse. We can remember vividly where we were in that day, or maybe it's something a little bit more simple than that, like where you were when Tyson bit off Holyfield's ear, or you heard that Beyonce was having twins. Or that you heard that President Trump actually beat Hillary Clinton. Of course, some of you were asleep, right? Some of you were asleep and you found out the next day. Our brains have a weird way of forgetting what we ate for dinner yesterday, but then recalling vivid details about things that happened decades ago, correct? Very interesting. I still remember the moment in time when I first learned that Christians today suffered for Jesus Christ. I was driving in my little tiny Dodge Neon back in 1998. I'd just been saved. I was going west on Interstate 630, passing the old Travelers Baseball Stadium right next to the Little Rock Zoo, and a commercial comes on by an organization called Voice of the Martyrs. And they begin to talk about Christians who suffer in Sudan, 
And so I quickly jotted down their phone numbers so that I could call them and get their free newsletter and learn more about them. That day, I began to learn through a process that over 200 million Christians suffer in various ways around the world each year because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but that one Christian every five minutes meets face-to-face with Jesus. Meaning, during this time of our service, as we worship, 12 of our brothers and sisters will die as martyrs of Christ somewhere in this world. The question is, when suffering comes to your door, what's keeping you and I from checking out? What keeps us from throwing in the towel and just totally giving up and walking away? Jesus has a message for the church in Smyrna, and it relates to you individually and to us as a church collectively here this morning. Last week, we looked at Ephesus and how they were guilty of leaving their first love. And then today, we turn our attention 35 miles north of Ephesus to a church who is willing to die for the sake of love. Smyrna and Philadelphia are the only two churches out of the seven where Jesus has no word of concern or correction. He just comes to them in their suffering with them, comforting them. And today we're going to look at that with them. So number one on your sermon guide, we see this. Christ is characterized by his deity and resurrection power. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead... And has come to life. So the first thing that Jesus communicates to his people under fire is this. He is the eternal God. He is the eternal God. We must dwell upon the mighty, sovereign person of Christ. And that's what's going to separate us from the person who buckles and the person who stands firm during times of tribulation. We must dwell upon the mighty, sovereign person of Christ. The truth is, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to be godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. And it is the church who knows the sufficiency of Jesus, the mighty fortress of Jesus, the solid rock of Jesus, that will not bend, buckle, or break, When the going gets tough and the tough gets going. Jesus says here that he is the first and the last. So try for a moment with me to think back and far back in time as you possibly can. This is always fun to do. So think back as far as you can go. Not talking about yesterday or last year, but back to Adam and Eve. And then we go back a little further to the days of creation. And go back before that to when God created the angels And then we go back a little ways before that to when there was nothing more than the Trinity itself, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then, take your mind another trillion years before that. And what do we have? The Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we go back another trillion years and you get my point. You get my point. The reason I know is because I can see that little whirly bird propeller over your head like when your laptop begins to lock up, right? That's what happens when we try to think and grasp these eternal truths. Jesus is before everything. He comes first. He is preeminent. And that big supercomputer called our brain can't fully grasp that. He's also the last. Nothing can outlast him. He is before and he is beyond all things. All things. He is the eternal God from beginning to end who sovereignly controls all things, including his bride, the church, and anyone and anything that will come against her. Now, 
Jesus says, I am the first and the last. And that likens to something in chapter 1, verse 8, when the Father says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And Jesus here is identifying himself with the first person of the Trinity, his Father, which is called, or is likened to, uh, by theologians as high Christology. Dr. Jim Hamilton, who is a professor at Southern Seminary, when he talks about high Christology, referring to this, he says, it is so high that the air is not only so thin, it makes us dizzy, the atmospheric pressure at this height crushes lungs. Jesus is God. And that's what he's saying. I am the first and the last. He is the eternal God, and B, he is the resurrected Lord. He is the resurrected Lord. Be careful here because this is where our brains can literally break, right? So he says he is not only the first and the last, the eternal God, but he was dead and has come to life. So the first statement is emphasizing Jesus' deity. I am the first and the last. But when he said, I was dead and I have come to life, he is emphasizing his humanity. In other words, now brace your brain for a moment, the eternal God died. The eternal God died. And that's what we're learning here. The one who existed outside of time and space, created time and space, come into time and space, lived a sinless life, the life we could not live, and went to the cross to die a death that none of us wanted to die, but it had to be done. And he rose from the dead on the third day. Death has no power over Jesus. Jesus takes death and he turns it upon its head. He turns it upside down because death and the grave has no power over the Son of God who is the resurrection and the life. Amen? Amen? That's because for us, every day is Resurrection Sunday. And we get to celebrate our risen Lord again and again and again. The believers in Smyrna needed to hear the words of that old song, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Jesus was all too familiar with suffering and himself was unjustly murdered and said in John 15, 20, that no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And this is where they can draw strength in this moment. And they see that Jesus is completely in charge. And Christ himself is sufficient for them. He is the sovereign God. And they can draw strength and courage once they spiritually digest this truth when they dwell upon the mighty, sovereign person of Christ. That's why he starts off his letter by saying this to a group of suffering believers. Number two, the church is commended for its faith and perseverance. The church is commended for its faith and perseverance. So he says, I'm the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. And then this is what he says to them in verse 9. I know. I know. And some of us need to hear that from Jesus today. He knows where you are. I know your tribulation and your poverty. But listen, you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And so he says, I know, because the watchful eye of the shepherd saw three things coming down upon his church. He saw tribulation, poverty, and blasphemy or slander coming against them. They were in tribulation, which means a pressing, a pressing down upon them like a heavy or large boulder coming down on top of them that they could not hold up themselves. We've got any fans of the Olympics in here? Anybody? Who's just more of a fan of the Summer Olympics? Who likes that a lot better? 
Uh, very few. What about the Winter Olympics? Man, we don't have many fans, right? Not many fans. Okay, so every so often, though, we hear of cities who compete in bids to host the Olympics, right? And are trying to, to vie for that. Well, the same thing happened in the Roman Empire when it came to hosting the temple for the worship of Emperor Tiberius Caesar. Eleven cities were competing to build the temple where they would worship Caesar, uh, Tiberius Caesar. And guess who won the bid? Smyrna. Smyrna won, and they became the leading city of the Roman cult of emperor worship. Christians who rejected this were marked. They became outcast, ostracized. They would suffer economically. They would suffer socially, and many would suffer even physically and pay and lay down their lives. This is part of the narrow road that Jesus spoke of to us in the Gospels that would lead to life. And oftentimes that narrow road to life has a lot of potholes and it has a lot of landmines. But to follow Jesus, first we must accept sacrifice. We must accept sacrifice. You see, the word Smyrna is literally translated myrrh. Does that remind you of anything? Myrrh was a sweet perfume that was used to embalm dead bodies. It was a gift that the Magi brought to Jesus. Remember, it's a gift And it was a gift that would be symbolic of his coming death. Speaking of gift, Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted as a gift for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, gift, but also to suffer for his sake, gift. You see, faith in Christ and suffering for Christ are both viewed scripturally as gifts from God. Now, Speaking of that gift, guess what else myrrh was used for? Myrrh was also used in Exodus chapter 30 as one of the ingredients that was mixed into the anointing oil that would be poured over the uh, 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 great, the high priest to anoint him, to set him apart as holy. Okay? You follow me there? I kind of stuttered through that a little bit. So it was one of the ingredients that was used in the anointing oil for the high priest to set him apart as holy. Now, I hope you're listening because this is the part where, where we, we kind of take the chocolate of the sermon and the peanut butter of the sermon and we put it together and make a sweet, sweet little Reese's, all right? In this point, you're gonna, no, I don't want you to miss this because I believe that somebody here really needs to hear this today. In Christ, we've been anointed, amen? Amen? Okay, we've been anointed, but hear me, when our life is being squeezed, when the pressing down of tribulation comes down upon us, the squeezing in comes from around us, what's happening? Jesus is looking to set us apart in that anointing by bringing from us, from that crushing, that crushing, that sweet perfume of his life to those around us. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. And so when the myrrh was taken from a plant. It was taken from the plant by a crushing that would release the fragrance. 
And tribulation is accomplishing that for, for those in Christ who are bearing up under it. So Jesus is taking all the trials and challenges that we try so hard to escape from and squeezing, us, the fra- squeezing from us the fragrance of his life so that it can be released to those around us so that that friend, that neighbor, that co-worker, that classmate can be transformed as they take in the sweet perfume and fragrance of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are bearing up in tribulation. Now, a result of the persecution is that Jesus said that they were poor. They were poor. Now, the word poor translated here is just straight up destitute. They had lost everything in this world for following Jesus Christ. Ed Newton put it this way, though. He said, you may have nothing in this world, but you have the one who made the world. You may have nothing in this world, but you have the one who made the world. So Jesus says they were rich. Hebrews 10.34 says, You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail, and when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. We must accept sacrifice. Next, we will be attacked by Satan. We'll be attacked by Satan. So this is a group of believers who had literally found themselves thrown into the lion's den. They were like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace as a church. And although their suffering was done at the hands of the Jews, or as Jesus said, were not Jews at all, because they were only Jews outwardly, not Jews inwardly. They had been circumcised outwardly as a sign of the covenant, but they had not been circumcised of the heart. And the father of their faith was Abraham, and they had not followed in his faith, which looked to Jesus. In that day, John chapter 8, where Jesus tells them, You are not of your father Abraham, but of your father the devil. They were a synagogue of Satan, and this church was suffering at the hands of the Jews. And Jesus reminds them, like he reminds us, Ephesians chapter 6, Be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm and resist the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So stand ready, stand firm, and never forget that Satan is like a dog on God's leash. And he can only go as far as God allows him to go. We must accept sacrifice. We will be attacked by Satan. And then we can anticipate suffering. We can anticipate suffering. Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus said that suffering would last for a period of ten days and I want you to understand that it's probably not referring to a literal 10 days here because they lived in the Roman Empire and they lived in the the hub of emperor cult worship. And it's more than likely that they would not go to prison for 10 days and then all the suffering would be over. But what I believe is going on here is that Jesus is trying to say that this period of time, this period of time is a definite time. It's coming, but it's a limited time. I'm in control of it. There is an ending. Suffering is coming, but it's only a test. The devil's going to bring it, but it's a test. And remember, the devil doesn't test. He tempts. But God brings us through times of testing to bring us through the fire, the refiner's fire, and pull out a church that is refined and beautiful like a precious 
metal, a precious gold. You think of the old, the old illustration many of you may have heard before. We talk about a refiner's fire, and he turns up the heat as he looks in to the gold or the silver. And as he turns up the heat, he does so to, to bring the impurities to the surface. Those impurities are hindering the refiner from seeing the reflection of his face in the pure metal. And so he, he then casts aside the impurities so he can see his reflection. And that's what our refiner, our Heavenly Father, is doing. As he turns up the heat, trials and tribulations come against the church so that he can cast aside the impurities of our lives. That he can see his reflection, so he can see his face in us once again. Suffering will not last forever. It will come to an end. God is in control. And third, the church is challenged by God's reward and promise. He calls them here to be faithful unto death. And then he says, we will receive a crown for our faith. We will receive a crown for our faith. I want to tell you a little story from history for a moment. I want to take you back to a time, 155 A.D., and tell you a story about a man who is the oldest recorded story that we have outside of the Bible of a Christian dying for his faith. Okay, so this Christian was actually a pastor, and he was a pastor of the church, and guess where? Smyrna. The oldest recorded account that we have of a Christian suffering for their faith outside of the Bible is a pastor of Smyrna, and his name is Polycarp. Say it, Polycarp. Weird name, but I hope you can remember it later. Feel free to get online and look him up. I'll tell you kind of his story in a nutshell. But Polycarp, very interesting, was a disciple of the Apostle John who wrote the letter we're studying this morning. And the Apostle John was one of the disciples Jesus loved. And so you see this chain of relationship that goes. And here we come to the first recorded martyr in Christian history outside of the Bible, 155 A.D., pastor, or they called him Bishop Polycarp. Now, Polycarp was arrested in his hometown, and he was brought before the proconsul Quadratus. And Quadratus then brought him in front of an arena filled with Gentiles and Jews alike, a hostile crowd, ready to see some action. And so Quadratus is wanting to, to make an example of Polycarp, but he's facing a dilemma. He faces the dilemma that well, he doesn't really want to kill an elderly man, and he's afraid, though, if he kills him also, he would become more beloved to the people. But he's going to have to threaten him because Polycarp was facing prosecution for being a Christian and stirring up people toward Christianity, which then was turning away from the Roman cult of emperor worship. Polycarp was brought before his captors, and... They, again, they really didn't want to kill him. Now, again, I said he was an elderly man. To put it in perspective, he was probably in his 90s at this time. Because later in his testimony, he refers to following Jesus for 86 years. And so he's probably an elderly man in his 90s. They didn't want to kill him. They didn't want to make an example of him, but they had to do something. So he was told by Quadratus to deny Christ, and he politely refuses. So Quadratus then replies back to him, You don't understand. I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not change your tone and deny Christ. Polycarp's response, call them. Those were his words. This was actually after the time when the empire had already banished sending people to the wild beasts. And I guess Polycarp understood that. And so Quadratus had to change his tone. And so then he responded by telling Polycarp, if you despise the animals, I will have you burned. And check out 
Polycarp's response. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Do whatever you want. As you might imagine, Quadrat just didn't like that. So he said again, you can spare yourself, Polycarp, if you repent and you say, away with the atheist. Now you've got to understand, during that time, Christians were referred to as atheists because of the polytheism and the cult emperor worship in the Roman Empire. They were considered the atheist. And so Polycarp was happy to oblige this request to say, away with the atheist. And he looked into the crowd of all the, he- the, the ungodly heathen around him and pointed at them and said, away with the atheist. And this infuriated Quadratus. So then he orders the execution of Polycarp by burning him at the stake. And they send out the executioners with stakes to nail him to this post. Polycarp says, you have no need for that. I'm not going to run. And so they tie him up to the post. And they light it on fire. The testimony in history tells of a miracle. It says that when the flames came up, a great wind came and the flames bowed around Polycarp's body. And here's what witness testimony said. Inside it, he looked not like flesh that is burnt, but like bread that is baked or gold and silver glowing in a furnace. And check this out based off something we just talked about. And we smelt a sweet scent like frankincense or some precious spices. Smyrna, myrrh, the crushing, the fragrant aroma. So out of frustration, the executioner was then ordered to kill him. And he took out a dagger and he plunged it into Polycarp's chest. And again, history states that so much blood came out of his chest that it, 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 it extinguished the flames at his feet. Now, as remarkable as that event was, it could have been easily avoided. And a lot of people would have said, hey, it would be easy. I can just say these two words And I can spare my life and my ministry. And I don't even have to mean those two words, but I'm free, scot-free to go do what I want. He only had to say two words. And with those two words, Polly's carp would spare his life, go back to his church, his family, continue his ministry. Anybody know what those two words were? Kaiser Curios. Kaiser Curios. Caesar is Lord. But Polycarp would rather be burned alive than utter those words. And when he stood before Quadratus and Quadratus told him to recant his faith in Jesus, here's what Polycarp said to him. Eighty-six years, I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? What sets a man like that apart? from somebody who would turn and run from the fire. It's what they know about the majesty and the sovereign person of Jesus Christ. Polycarp, Smyrna's pastor, was certainly faithful unto death. And like him, if we remain faithful unto death, next, we will overcome the second death. We will overcome the second death. Verse 11 says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. I want to tell you another story. You may be familiar with this next person. It was a a, a young pastor by the name of Saeed Abedini. 
Saeed Abedini. Raise your hand if you're familiar with that name, by chance. For years, people have been seeking the release of Saeed. At 20 years old, he was, he was an Iranian who uh, moved to America, but he was converted at the age of 20 and then began to travel back and forth to Iran to see family and do ministry there. In 2009, he was, he was taken in by the police and questioned over his conversion. And then they released him upon condition that he would not be engaged with the underground church any longer. But then in 2012, he was once again arrested, coming back into Iran, working with an orphanage. Now, he served three and a half years where he was persecuted for his faith in Christ while in prison. He suffered for Jesus in that prison. Three and a half years, he was released in January of 2016. During that time, Saeed received a letter from his seven-year-old boy in jail. where his son was about to have his seven-year-old birthday party. And he wanted to send a letter to his imprisoned father and invite him to his party. Saeed had that ability to respond back and write his son a letter. And I want to read to you the words because I believe we can see some of the valuable lessons that we have learned here today in Saeed's letter to his son. To my dear beloved son Jacob, I saw your beautiful birthday invitation that you had made me, and I know how much you wanted me to be there on your birthday. Daddy loves you so much. I long to be there for your birthday and to make this reunion happen, but my chains are keeping me from you. I want you to know that although I might not be there and you might feel my absence, there is one who always is, one who is always there with you and who can meet all of your needs under any condition. I might not be with you there on your birthday, and that breaks my heart as your father. But I know the one who is there on your birthday, who is there for you and cares for you more than anyone could imagine. He is there with you, and his name is I am who I am. I am who I am. It means that God is there with you in every situation that you are going through. This is the name that God introduced himself when meeting with Moses in the burning bush, when God's people were crying out to him and were feeling his absence. Today, there are many people around the world who are experiencing the same things that, God, that the people of God were experiencing and that you are experiencing. They are crying out to God and might not be feeling His presence. They are wondering, where is God in all of this? But I want you to remember that despite what you feel, He is always there with you. Even though I am not there with you, I am is there with you. God came in human flesh, in Jesus Christ, all the way from heaven to the earth to give us the gift of salvation by being crucified on the cross for the punishment of our sin. So on this special day, I want you to accept this gift of salvation. Invite Jesus into your heart, son, as you have invited me to your birthday. So happy birthday to my big boy and my hero, Jacob. Cyrus Abedini, thank you for standing strong with me in this battle for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your proud dad, Saeed. Saeed understood the person of Christ. He wanted his son to hear that, that he is our fortress, that he is our rock. And if we reflect upon that like Saeed did, like Polycarp did, like John did, Paul did, and those words that Jesus and all those men knew, Psalm 54 to 11. He is my God. I will not be afraid. 
what can man do to me? Philippians 1.21 For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live, I live for Jesus. If I die, I get Jesus. Either way, I win. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. See, the world may cut me up, but they cannot shut me up. The jihadists may want to remove my head from my body, but they cannot remove me from my head. And like the three men who stood in the fiery furnace before they were cast in it, they said to Nebuchadnezzar, Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to your image, Nebuchadnezzar. And we must stand with them in the same way, upon the same truths of the same rock, that is Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this moment as we seek to respond to you, I recognize that some in here are feeling crushed in trial and tribulation. And Lord, I'm asking that you would help them bear up under that suffering as they would reflect upon the sweet truths of the person of Christ and who he is, that he is sovereignly in control of all things in our life. And Lord, would you please bring that sweet, sweet, fragrant aroma from their lives that the people around them will be drawn into the presence of Jesus. Lord, would you minister to them in this moment, those who are really feeling the heat right now. Lord, would you please help us to be the church who will stand and not be ashamed of the gospel when everything around us in this culture comes against us to deny the foundational truths that we believe uh, believe in in the scriptures. Help us to be men and women of faith who stand firm and are ready to suffer and perhaps die and say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who do not know Jesus Christ, and perhaps they don't even realize that they don't know Christ. Maybe they think they know Jesus, they just know a lot of good things about Jesus, but they have no relationship with him. I'm praying this morning that you would open the blinders. And that you would help them to see the light of your glorious gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. And that today, might you turn their heart in repentance and faith to trust upon Jesus. To fully save them and give them the gift of eternal life. Lord, you can do that. You are mighty to save. And so, Lord, we pray that in this moment you would receive this time of worship as a sweet, fragrant aroma. And a declaration from us that, Lord, I need you. I need you, oh, I need you. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.